Good to see you and welcome back. If you're new here, uh, my name is Joel and I have the privilege of teaching uh, from the Bible here often at Emmanuel. I've actually been away for uh, several Sundays in a row, uh, mostly uh, serving in other churches that we're involved with. So it is good to be back, at least from my point of view. It's nice to, to be back and nice to see you all as well. So uh, a really warm welcome to you and a happy Easter. Uh, we are in the book of Matthew, which we've been going through really slowly um, since the start of the year, and we're planning to stay in Matthew for a while longer. Uh, we're in chapter 6 at the moment, um, but today we're breaking all the rules. We're going to peek at the end of the book. So big spoiler alert, we're going to chapter 28. We're going to find out how it all finishes, uh, because it's Easter Sunday, so uh, it's a... Uh, it's going to be that way. So you're going to find out who did who did the crime, uh, you know, with what they, with, you know, with the candlestick in the in the billiard room or whatever. Uh, Matthew 28. So I'm going to read the whole chapter to you, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into what it has to say to us today. Verse one. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Then if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
Let's just pray together. Father, thank you again for the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you for this moment we have on this Easter Sunday to reflect on the wonder of his great triumph over the enemies of death and sin, guilt and shame. We thank you for the completion of his victory. We thank you for the demonstration of it, the proof of it in his own rising from the the grave. And we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit now so that these stories won't just be uh, stories locked into the past, but that the, the present implications of them would break in on our lives and we would live in the good of them, truly the good of them, because you are a good God, a wonderful, kind, merciful, loving God. So teach us your way today. Help us to walk in your truth and change each one of us in our hearts because of what you show us of yourself through these words of scripture in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you would have seen, I'm sure, most of you these last few days, images from Paris that uh, uh, grip the imagination of the world as, as one of the most iconic buildings uh, in, in the world, literally. Uh, was engulfed in flames. And many people uh, made all kinds of comments in mainstream media and social media about the, the interpretation of this event, the symbol that this event represented, the burning away of something so... Uh, so apparently uh, dependable. It's part of who we are, the Cathedral of Notre Dame. It's, it's just, it's just it's, you know, part of the furniture. And, you know, it, that's obviously a glib phrase to, to use. It's, it's, just, it's, it's so foundational to culture and society and history. It's what makes us European, makes us Western. You know, all these different kinds of comments have been made. And yet it's gone. It's gone gone in our time, in our generation, in our day. It's, it's, it's gone. It's forever distorted. Something that was there for 800 years. And for many, it seems symbolic of a, a more general loss of purpose and meaning and identity in the West. People have all kinds of worries and anxieties for all kinds of reasons. Big kind of foreign affairs reasons, big uh, economic reasons, big uh, European reasons, big British reasons. We're kind of nervous and looking around thinking, what's dependable? What, what can you rely upon? What can you expect to be there and stay there? If a cathedral like that can suddenly go, what, what does it say about the kind of age in which we live? Well, well Matthew's account of the, the death and resurrection of Jesus is kind of similarly dramatic in that it, it actually particularly dwells on the kind of the, the dramatic side of the story. Matthew, in, in the earlier chapter, which I've not read to you uh, this evening, chapter 27, describes the, the death of Jesus in epic kind of cosmic terms. It talks about the, the sky going dark. He talks about the ground shaking. This is the point when Jesus died. He talks about the damage that the, the temple in the city sustained as Jesus gave up his last breath. It's, it's a powerful, dramatic account that Matthew gives. And then, as we've just read, just a couple of days later, when the, the, these women, Mary and Mary, come to see uh, the tomb, there's yet more drama. The ground shakes again. And there's this angelic uh, visitation. It's, it's all drama with Matthew. He, he wants you to know this was big, this was epic, this, this 
caused everyone to think, what is going on in our city? What is going on? The sky goes dark. What is this? And, and for many people, it had been a, a, a time of a lot of drama anyway. The Jesus movement, if you might call it that, had caused a lot of angst in, in sort of places of power, a lot of conversations, a lot of whispers, a lot of, a lot of machinations, and people trying to close the thing down. And, and then obviously the crowd's coming out to get involved in this ridiculous trial, this choice between Jesus and Barabbas. And then Jesus gets publicly taken away and crucified. Crowds coming out, people terrified of riots. There'd already been a riot in the temple a few days earlier, started by this one Jesus who was now being taken away. The authorities were probably tired of all the drama, all the histrionics, and just like, can we just calm down now? This man is dead. Let's put him under rocks. Let's just forget about it and move on at last with normal life. And yet here's this, this Easter Sunday outbreak. And it's in the midst of all of this drama and crisis that we hear first through the voice of the angel from heaven and then secondly through the voice of Jesus the master himself these words do not be afraid do not be afraid Matthew dwells on it twice in the context of all all that's shaking the message from heaven do not be afraid and we need to know whether that's reliable advice Right? We need to be sure whether that's, that's good counsel. Because we live in a world where there's a lot to be afraid of. If we're facing the right direction, if, we, if we're being real, if we're not sticking our head in the sand, we ought to at least be thinking, you know, what is going on with the world? Even just now, as we've heard in our, in our praying, these unspeakable atrocities happening even this morning to brothers and sisters of ours in Sri Lanka. We live in a horrendously messed up world and perhaps a particularly messed up age. And yet the voice from heaven, do not be afraid, comes. And we need to think, have we got grounds to trust that? Why should we listen to that advice? Why should we listen to that voice? Why, why should our fear be banished away? I'm just going to spend some time today just quickly looking at a couple of reasons why we should listen to this, why, why we should heed the advice, why we should obey the command to not be afraid. From this very bit of the Bible I've read to you, from these very words, first of all, we should not be afraid because we know the one who is speaking these words. That's the first reason. The first reason is, whose voice is it? Who is it that's saying it? It's through the angel, it's through the Lord Jesus. Ultimately, it's through a God who in himself is terrifying. Well, think about this. The God who says, do not be afraid, is the most terrifying being there is. You get a flavor of that in verse 4 where it just describes what happened to the guards. These would have been carefully selected men who knew how to, <laughs> knew how to guard a tomb. The Romans were good at being intimidating and violent when necessary. And they were violent, very violent in Israel. They were, they were very bullish people. 
especially amongst the Jews in the first century AD. And here's what happens to them in verse 4 when God shows up in, the, in, in an angelic visitation. The guards trembled and became like dead men. That's, that's, that's the description right there. Like dead men. It was so frightening. It absolutely terrified these strong men to their core. For fear of the angel, they became like dead men. Well, why is this important? Well, put it this way. A lot of the time you hear, maybe you'll, you'll think for yourself that, that Christianity functions as a kind of comfort against the backdrop of a tough universe. The world is tough. I've already been saying it's tough. It's subject to, to changes, gradual and sudden changes that are all bad. Often it just feels bad. It feels like a tough place to live in all kinds of ways. And the troubles we go through mean that we might reach out for the sticky plaster of a religious affirmation, a religious encouragement, make us feel a little better. And that's many people's uh, rejection of Christianity. It's, I, I, I can see right through it. It's just, you just need your nice God. You need your nice God, but you know he's just a nice kind of distraction from reality. Now, I've got to say, I think that's fair comment because certainly that is going to happen. A lot of religion, in fact, I would say all religion, <laughs> it would seem, is pretty much down to that. You know, it could boil down to we, we, we need some kind of way of getting comfort in the midst of a hostile world. Problem is that doesn't really work when it comes to the God of this book because the God of this book, he doesn't really help at first because he turns out to be more scary than the stuff that scared us in the first place. Who would have chosen a God who's actually more of a problem who actually makes, you, makes, makes people literally frightened to the point of looking dead, like dead men. It, it causes people to tremble that much. There's so many others. This isn't just an isolated example, just to be clear. The Bible is full of such occasions where people who are already frightened by other things then meet God and find out they've got something much more serious to be frightened of. You need to know, the Bible, the Bible is clear about this. Whatever phobia you have, whatever thing you think you are most frightened of, God is more frightening. Do you ever think of it like that? I wonder if you do. God is more frightening. God himself, the real, not the made up gods, not the plastic ones, not the, not the nice fluffy ones that we might reach for, but the, the God of the book, the God of the Bible, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ he is more frightening. And it's a good thing that he is. Yeah, it may sound strange. That may sound completely different to what you expect. But I, I want to tell you, you need a God who will scare you. You need a God who terrifies. You do. You do. Just logically. Otherwise, how can he help you anyway with your fears? If he isn't greater than them. You need the God who is so frightening that he relativizes all other fears. He shows you what's really worth being frightened of. If you want the real God, that's what he's like. 
Obviously, if, if he is the real God, then that means we've got trouble because I can't just invite this real God into my life as a sort of bonus or bolt-on. I can't just sort of entertain him and bring him into the margins of my life and say, okay, well, we'll just take, you can jump on too. We'll go through life. I'm on, you know, this my project of life has is, is got space for a, a nice God person. You join in as well and we'll just go through with, oh, well, God with me as well. It's great having a, a God's my mate. Isn't that good? It never works like that, not really, it's not for long. It's the whole nature of this God is that you can't have him on those terms. He's either the centre of it all or he's nowhere. He's either the one that you build your life upon, he's either the foundation or he's not in the building of your life. Many of us have tried dragging God in to be a set piece in our life. Have you ever tried that? You, you know if you've ever tried it for long enough, it, it won't do. He will, he, will, he will gradually turn your life upside down. Because he's real. He's, he's not just a comfort blanket. He's a real God. He's real. It's really remarkable that these guards were terrified as much as they were and then these women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, who we assume is, Mary, is Jesus' mother Mary, They are also frightened, but their experience of fear is a bit different. If you notice, it's kind of a curious verse. You ever found this a weird, weird description? The Bible's got a few verses like this that don't really make sense when you stop and consider them. Verse 4, for the fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Then later on, it says in verse 8, the women departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran from the tomb. To tell his disciples. Now, I, that's th- I can't do two of those things, let alone three. Talk about multitasking. My wife could maybe manage them. <laughs> but to, to be running with fear and joy at the same time. I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine doing that. You just I can't, can't quite pull it off. That's really weird, isn't it? It's a strange. Just, how do you run with fear and joy? They're totally doing it. But I want you to know... That's not that unusual in the Bible. There's a few verses that say the same sort of thing. There's this weird thing. The people that have got to know the God of the Bible, they go through the process of fear. There's kind of phases of fear. And the initial phase can feel like just sheer assault and terror. But it's not the only phase. For people who... Well, it says that even the way the angel speaks to ladies is really interesting. He says, I know that you have come to search for Jesus. I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. The angel speaks to them and says, don't you be afraid. Why not? Because you, you've come to seek Jesus. You, in other words, it says like they, when they found Jesus, they worshipped at his feet. Something's happened to these women. So, so that their experience of the fear of God is a joyful thing. They've met the real scary God, but they like him. How could that be? They really do. They've come to know him. He's still terrifying. They're still frightened, but they're also overjoyed. It's just electrifying to them. There's a place in the, in the Narnia book, just after Aslan rises, where it says Lucy and Susan were dancing with the lion and they couldn't tell whether they were 
dancing with a, what was the phrase he uses, with a, with a, a thunderstorm or with a kitten. C.S. has got just the same thing in mind. This kind of thunderstorm and the kitten at the same time. This is what God's like. Do you know God like this? Have you understood that this is the God of the Bible? Have you understood him? If you only see God as a kitten, you haven't seen him. You haven't seen him. You need to come to see that God is to be feared. You need to come to see something of his majesty. You just see what even these guards saw. You need to go further than the guards. You need to worship him. You need to seek him. The guards were not seeking him. You need to decide that he's worthy of being the foundation of your life, the basis of your life. If you allow him to become the centerpiece of your life, you'll learn what it means to rejoice and tremble. You will. You'll, you'll find that this happens in your life. And my friend, you were born. Listen to me, please. You were born to know a God who makes you tremble with joy. And for nothing less, nothing less than that will satisfy you. You must get to know the real God. Otherwise, you'll stay in your terrible fear, horrible fear. And you, everything will frighten you. You need to know a God who has authority to say to you, do not be afraid, and you believe him. <laughs> when the God of the Bible says, don't be afraid, I listen. When my mate down the pub says, don't be afraid, I can't receive it. I can't. When someone on Facebook says, don't be afraid, yeah, that's nice, thanks for, thanks for your encouragement, but really, I need to hear God say it. And you do. You need to hear the living God say it. And listen, for those of us who've come to know him, for those of us like these women who seek him, that is exactly what he says to you today. Do you seek him? Do you seek Jesus? Are you looking for Jesus? And his words to you are, don't be afraid. So seek him now. Seek him with all of your heart. There's nobody like him. These guards, they didn't seek him. The striking thing about the guards, just before we move on, just to say, it's kind of scary in itself. They were the people who had the closest front row seat to the resurrection in the history of the world. The most extraordinary thing that ever happened so far in world history. They were the closest spectators. And they, instead of embracing it and building their lives on it, instead built their lives on a lie. They took money and said, oh, the disciples stole the body. And that is, if you stop and consider it, frightening. Because it means that you can get that close to God and still refuse him. You can even have a terrifying experience. You can have a, an extraordinary spiritual encounter. And Brightonians love them. You can, you, can just, you can go just to the margins, to the extremes in terms of experience, but still in your heart, be more interested in a bit of money, a bit of career success than you are in following Jesus. That's what these guards were like. They, they swallowed a lie and they spread a lie because in the end they wanted protection and they wanted cash more than they wanted Jesus. Scary, friends. You can get that close to God and still back away. Please hear me. 
Just being at church on a Sunday, an Easter Sunday, in the end, that, isn't the, that is not the test. Do you seek Jesus? Are you like those women or are you like those gods? Do you seek Jesus? Let me say one more thing before I finish, and that is if, if he's able to set us free from fear by being more fearful, more frightening, he's also able to set us free from fear because he promised he'd never leave. He promised he'd stay. And that's, that's just what's there in the last few words of the whole of Matthew's gospel. He finishes with Jesus saying to these disciples, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And listen, behold, behold. In other words, look, listen, like I sometimes say when I'm preaching, please listen. This is what Jesus does, right? Behold, guys, you got your attention? Look at me, guys. I am with you, even to the end of the age. Behold. Get this, I'm with you. And then he disappeared. So we've got to work this one out, right? It's literally, if you read in Luke and you read in Acts, and you, you know that Jesus made a very clear statement, I'm with you, and then he ascended to the Father. In other words, he literally went into another spiritual dimension. I don't mean that he stopped being a man in some extraordinary way. We haven't got time. Get the Creed series from the autumn if you want to look into this. He, he ascended to the Father. So he says, I'm with you. And then literally, maybe, I don't know, maybe a, I don't know, maybe a couple of days later, this is all, the, the chronology is a bit complicated. We don't completely understand how it all worked out. But basically, he, he, you could say, well, you said you'd be with us, and you're not. You're gone. So what is that about? Well, what it's about is actually the whole point of Matthew's gospel. So come with me on this just for a sec before we finish. Matthew... If you read it carefully, you've got to learn to read our Bible books sometimes with an ear for some of the key words, some of the little nuggets that are thrown in here and there that kind of give you a clue as to what the whole book is about. And Matthew, if you remember, right early on in chapter 1, describes the announcement of the birth of Jesus with these words, he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. His name means God with us. And when you read through the book of Matthew, you see that theme coming out, sometimes explicitly, sometimes subtly. Jesus saying to his disciples, whenever two or more are gathered in my name, I am with you. And then at the very end of the book, he says, behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. What Jesus came to bring to us is the presence of the living God. Matthew wants us to get this. Jesus is the presence of God. And because of Jesus and because of what he came and did, we now have his presence with us in a way that we could never have otherwise. Think about what we mean by the presence of God. For these readers, Matthew's readers, for Matthew himself, the presence of God would have basically been associated with one place, one building on planet Earth the temple in Jerusalem. That was the presence of God. If you wanted to get to know God, you had to go to a certain place. That was his rendezvous. You could not meet him somewhere else. 
Not really. You couldn't, you couldn't expect it. You couldn't assume it. I mean, God shows up wherever he wants. But in terms of a place where we could just assume to connect with him, oh, you, you had to go to Jerusalem. You had to, that was the place of approach. That was the place of his dwelling with human beings. Except that hardly any human beings could really approach him. In fact, to the most holy place, only one could. And only once a year. But it was the place where God dwelt. And God dwelt in a particular part of the, the, the building, the temple, in what was called the Holy of Holies, behind a curtain, which was only approachable, as I say, once a year, through a very explicit ritual of bloodshed and animal sacrifice and cleansings and ritual clothings and all the rest. Everything that had to be exactly so, just so that humanity, in some representative way, through one priest, could approach the presence of this fearful God we've been describing so to say God with us if Israel could say God is with us in a sense he was but but not in anyone's real experience not not most people and so if you wanted to get to know him yeah it was a special thing to get to do and you might get to go to Jerusalem on pilgrimage you know people today we still have certain places that seem precious to us you don't have to be religious to be into that. Many of you would have places that you like going to because you feel at home, you feel safe, you feel relieved and relaxed and refreshed. And you kind of, You've got your own temples, haven't you? Places you like getting to. And, and you've got to think with the Jerusalem temple, it's like that with several zeros on. It's like that times a thousand. It's just intensely special. God's there. God's there. Do we dare enter his presence? He's there in that one place. But who could approach? Who could expect to receive blessings? <laughs> Until this one man, Jesus, walks amongst ordinary people and does the things that the temple was supposed to do. Jesus could, could go up to people who were not just ill, but leprous, people who were unclean spiritually, unclean, unable to approach, and touch them and not get their leprosy, but they get his healing. Jesus would say to people, your sins are forgiven. How does he get to say things like that? This is like the temple walking around. It's like a portable temple. Jesus is the presence of God just walking around, just being amazing, just doing stuff, healing, forgiving, cleansing, changing people's lives. Just everywhere he goes, the presence of God, the presence of God. God's here. And then when he's giving up his spirit, just as we said a few minutes ago, at that very moment, remember there's that earthquake in the city at the point of his death. Remember what happened to the curtain in the temple? That very curtain was torn from top to bottom. You read it, chapter 27. Torn from top to bottom. And now Jesus goes to his disciples in Galilee and he says, I'm sending you to make disciples of all nations. All nations. I'm sending you into all the world. Not just Israel, not just Jerusalem, not just the temple. No, the presence of God needs to go everywhere. I am with you even to the end of the age. I'm going to all nations and I will be with you. With you. You read your Bible, you notice that phrase. All over the place, God's saying to his people, I'll be with you, I'll be with you. This is the promise we yearn for. And Jesus offers it freely as we go, not, not to the one place on planet Earth where we might get a peek, but 
into the world, into the nations, into, into our workplaces, our, our, our neighbourhoods, our, our, our future. As we go wherever we go, if we belong to Jesus, we carry his presence. We're, we are his dwelling place. Jesus has become the temple and we've become the temple by extension because we're joined with him. We have his presence with us. And for many of us, this has become a key characteristic of our life, actually knowing the presence of God in our lives. We know his presence with us right now. I believe he's here now. Very often when we're worshipping and singing and praying, we sense his presence in an extraordinary way. Some of you, you've had experiences of the presence of God that you know it's exactly what he means. I'm with you, he said, and sure enough, he shows up. Often when we desperately pray to him, he answers prayers dramatically. Sometimes people are sick and they get powerfully healed, yeah, even in this church. We've got stories that demonstrate the presence. Jesus, he's with us by his spirit. He's gone to the Father, but he sent the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, He sent the Spirit to be that presence. But this would never have happened without the cross. It's because Jesus gave himself for our sin that we could enjoy the presence of God freely. And it's huge for Matthew that we grasp this, that we understand that he is with us. And actually, it's it's striking that he says it in these emphatic terms at the very end of the book. Behold! Remember? Behold, I am with you. Because I guess a lot of the times we need to simply trust that. See, if you follow Jesus, you'll know that there are times when you feel the presence of God sometimes. I hope that you have done in all kinds of ways. But I also know that in reality, a lot of the time, you can't pretend that you're feeling his presence very much. There are times in the Christian life where you can even feel abandoned. You can feel that. You can feel that. Where is God? What is, where, where is Jesus? He said he'd be with me. I don't feel like he's with me at all. Sometimes when you go through dark seasons or painful situations, sometimes just frustrated with yourself, fed up with your failure as a Christian, and you just think, where is God? He just, I don't feel like he's anywhere near me. And if you're wise, what you'll come back to is the simple promise, I am with you. That's why he said it. Behold, I am with you. Notice the angel said to the, to the women earlier on in the chapter, said, the angel says to them, he is risen as he said. As he said, slightly pointed words there. Everyone freaked out, but we angels, we know that he means it. Jesus had promised he'd rise from the dead, but no one was listening. We were all like, la, 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 we don't even, don't even care, we don't even know, don't want to know about you dying. Jesus said, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise from the dead. No one even listened. But the angels have said, he did tell you. And now they've got their second chance, if you like, to believe him. Because God will say to us through our lives, I'm with you. And the temptation will be to behave like they did on Good Friday. Where's he gone? Let's run. Let's scatter. And we've got to come back to the promises. I'm with you. I'm with you. Right now, I'm with you, he says. Believe it. Just hold on to it. Hold on to the promise. It doesn't always feel so. That's why he told us, for the sake of the times when it doesn't feel so. Do you understand this? He promised he would stay with us. And for many of us, the reason we struggle, I'll finish with this, the reason we struggle perhaps with this promise is because, understandably, we doubt that he would want to be with us, right? 
And if anyone's sitting here thinking, of course he's with me, <laughs> I'm so extraordinarily attractive. On a spiritual level, he's drawn to me. I'm spiritually magnetic. Of course he wants to be with me. Well, I can guarantee you, if that's your attitude, he probably ain't with you. <laughs> Not in the way I'm describing. Because the whole thing doesn't work like that. You read Matthew again, keeps coming up all the way through, that the weakness that he wants us to have as disciples. Remember how he started his public preaching? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why does Matthew say at the very end of the book, when the disciples saw him on the mountain in Galilee, they worshipped him, but some doubted? Why would you throw that in? Seems harsh. What's Matthew saying that for? If I was writing Matthew, I'd be like, yeah, don't include that bit. That's just embarrassing. <laughs> How could they doubt him now? After everything Jesus has done. Be like, yeah, by now the guys get it. You know, Jesus is with his crew. It's like, you know, these guys should be like, yeah, we get it. You were right all along. We believe in you. We love you. We always did trust you. No, even now, after the resurrection, they're saying, I mm, can't really be sure. I can't, I'm not sure about whether I trust you or not. What? Why is Matthew including this detail? Because he wants you to know that the church was always made up of weak disciples. Even the top 11, minus Judas, you know, he's gone, the 12 minus Judas, the 11 now, they're still weak, still doubting, still hesitant, still confused. You think, why would Jesus want to be with me? Yeah, you ever felt like that? You ever felt like that? Why would Jesus bother with me? You're in good company. But you know what? He does. He, he really wants to. Why do I know that? Well, for so many reasons, but let me say this to finish with. After Jesus has lived the perfect life, suffered on a cosmic level on the cross, and died and been buried, and then been raised again to ascend to the Father, do you think by then you get to know what Jesus really wants, right? You get to know what he really wants, what he really wanted all along. When someone has arrived and succeeded, say if someone wins the lottery, after that you get to know what they really want in life. <laughs> they won the lottery, it's like, oh, you can watch now to see if you really do like your friends. Or if you'd like to cash in and get some new ones. That's what you ask when someone gets 24 million pounds suddenly. You think, I wonder if they'll keep their friends. I wonder who they'll want to be with. Jesus is about to be raised to the place of highest authority in existence. What is his heart? What does he say? What are his parting words to you and me? I'm with you. I want to be with you. He didn't have to. He really doesn't have to. He's not obliged, he's not constrained. He's free and he chooses to be with weak disciples. What, really? He's in heaven, isn't he? Oh, he's with us. He feels it, trust me. Remember what happened when Saul, the persecutor, got converted? Jesus said to him, why are you persecuting me? When he says, I'm with you, he means it. He's with you in everything. The tough things, the happy things, praying for you, compassionate about you, concerned for you sympathetic does he have to be like that no he wants to be like that because he likes you <laughs> he loves you 
He's for you. I know it's hard to believe. Trust me, I spend a lot of my time thinking, why? And I don't know why. I probably never will. Sometimes sing that song, I will never understand why you love me. But we're called to believe it. Do you believe it? When you believe it, it will start setting you free from fear. And you believe him when he says, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to. Let's pray together. Shall we, shall we stand? We're going to come to the table and celebrate with bread and wine this saviour of ours and what he's done for us. Let me just urge you to make this a, a, a moment of really engaging with him in your heart. It's so easy to go through emotions, isn't it, with bread and wine. We could just, just walk up and walk away. You're coming to Jesus, my friend. He said, I'll be with you. And he's with us particularly as we come to the table. That's the whole point. It's so that we can have a meal with our friend. <laughs> you can eat and drink with your friend. He's with you. He's with you. He's with you. If you're not yet a Christian, we, we want you to become a Christian so much. We so want you to know him. You may think, oh, am, I, am I allowed to take communion? Not just yet, okay? If you're not yet a Christian, just sit this one out. We'll explain later. But just for the sake of the time, let's just... This is for those that already have that relationship with Jesus. We'll help explain it a bit later for those of you that aren't yet ready. But come to the table as soon as you can when we sing this first song and, uh, and we'll worship God together. Let me just pray. Father, we thank you for this day again. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he's done. We want to live in the good of his promise. Lord, we want to trust that by your spirit, through your son, you are with us. So help us to enjoy that wholeheartedly today and all the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.